0: Hi, I'm Dave Dawson, my pen name is Dave Philpot, and I'm half of the D&D Philpott, who wrote Dear Mr. Popstar, inviting you to enjoy and love the Follow Your Dreams podcast with Robert Miller.
1: Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream And he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today.
2: Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Burton Aver guitarist, and a co-founder of The Knack, which hit the big time with their number one song, My Sharona, in 1979. That record, which was co-written by Burton, stayed at the top of the charts for six weeks and was named the number one record of the year by Billboard, and it sold 10 million copies, which just doesn't happen anymore. It was the fastest debut gold record since I Wanna Hold Your Hand by some little group from Liverpool. And he later went on to a new career in the theater, co-writing several screenplays and musicals. And as you know, with all my musical guests, I like to do in the middle what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of Burton's best works. We're going to talk about them. You're going to get the backstories And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know by now that in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. My featured song in this episode is called Annie and Lenny from my new album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. Why did I choose it? Well, I chose it because My Sharona was written for and about a particular girl, and Annie and Lenny was written for and about two particular girls. So I thought it fit. So Burton and Aver, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So listen, you had one of the biggest hits of the 70s. I mean, you can't get much bigger than what I just described from My Sharona. So I want you to kind of tell me all these years later, what are your impressions of that era and that hit for you guys?
0: Well, the era was, there were some changes that people were going through. And you had, basically, you had almost kind of like political Uh, political camps, because the punk thing had happened in around 76, you know, 77, right around there, it really exploded. And it kind of brought everybody this new sensibility about what they wanted music to be. Now, the unfortunate thing about that is I never limited what I liked based on what other people liked. And what you ended up having was camps. So if you dug punk, which I did, or you couldn't also dig ABBA, well, that wasn't true because a great song is a great song. And so Doug and I, Doug Feiger, who was the leader of the band and the lead singer, and we would write the songs. We were very much child, children of the 60s, and that was what we brought to the table, which was our heroes were great songwriters. And they wrote great melodies, and they wrote great chord changes, and they also slammed hard. And that was always the driving influence for our band.
1: I agree with that. But tell me, I mean, the whole punk thing, when it happened, it really wasn't my era. I didn't really get it, with a few exceptions. You thought that it was it was definitely a good thing that was
0: happening at that time? I think there was like, I thought great the, the sex pistols were great. Pretty much, most all the rest of it sounded to me like people trying to do the sex pistols. I also felt it was kind of a dead end street that there because it was all about being stripped down and primal, that it wasn't going to be able to grow into anything else. And so I I brought it up in the context of what the what the atmosphere was like at the time and what it was, was there was a lot of disco on the radio and what was called art rock, which was just basically people doing very grandly produced records, which there's nothing wrong with that. People have made amazing records by with a lot of production, you know, look at Queen for that matter. Yeah. So we kind of fell into the situation where hit radio, which there was back at the time, if you recall, we were literally told by our record company that "My Maishron won't be the first record off the album because they don't play hard rock on Top 40. We said, what the hell are you talking about? And um, fortunately for us, the song was so responded to that it, it made their decision for them.
1: You know, I've heard so many times a story that's like a variation of what you just said, where the guys in control of the record labels made all the wrong decisions, okay, about what was to be released, about what the sound of the group should be. The world didn't listen to those guys in so many instances. And it's a good thing they didn't, right?
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. There are people in the record business who really know their stuff and invariably they would not fit the mold you just described you know if you look at people like clive davis sure he he didn't try to make something what he liked he found things and said okay Mm -hmm. they have that gift right and so if you look at all the people that were successful on arista it was Arista, right clive davis yes yeah. <laughs> in Columbia before that. Yeah, right. But all the people that were successful in this really disparate artists, right? Because he didn't he didn't have this this groove of what I think is great music. He he basically responded to and was open to what those people could bring to the table.
1: Oh, I think you're right. And there there are a handful of guys or people that pushed the music in different directions. Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic was one of them. Lou Adler, mm-hmm. of course Clive Davis. But there were so many other guys, so many other labels where all they wanted was yesterday's hit Refried Again. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, you guys come out with my Sharona. The guys at the label didn't think it was going to be the first thing off the record, but it obviously went in a different direction. How did it get broken nationally? Was it a particular disc jockey? Was it some
0: event that happened? No, I, and and to give the record company their props, they knew that My Sharona was the song. I mean, everybody from the moment Doug and I wrote that song, we knew we, this is going to be the song. And every, the, from the first time we played it at the troubadour, from that point on, it's just they were being very cautious about what you could get on those, those you know, big radio stations. But what happened was AOR, it just exploded. You know, we were told once by uh, one of our promoters that they would, you know, get the record out and play and, and like 10 seconds into the start of the song, they're going, what is that? What is that? And they responded to it. I remember I did an interview with a disc talkie in, in Cleveland. And he said that the first time he played my Sharona, the call board lit up in like 10 seconds. And he said the only other song he remembered having that kind of response was More Than a Feeling by Boston. So I would say what broke the record, it wasn't a particular disc talkie, it was just just the general audience response from hearing the song the first time. You know, you're talking about an era, of course, that's long ago, the idea that the
1: phones light up. Tommy Rowe was just on the podcast and he was talking about how when he put out Sheila, which was his first big hit, same thing. The phones lit up at the radio station that was, you know, playing it at the time. And of course, the record business has gone to a very kind of corporate relationship where there's set lists and you know you can only play certain things that the disc jockeys don't have the same ability to put things out on the air that they used to have it's it's the the discretion is missing wouldn't it be better if we
0: were back in that older era yes unequivocally yes you know top 40 is kind of a uh, a dismissive phrase top 40 it suggests like cheap like teeny bopper right but if you and i are child's children in the 60s and if you look at a top 40 playlist in let's say the middle of 1966 you had a record by aretha followed by a record by the beach boys followed by a record by james brown followed by a record by buffalo springfield ball followed by a record by the stones followed by a record by Stevie Wonder. That's competition. And just try to imagine how good you had to be just to get on that top 40 playlist. You're absolutely right. You know, I grew up in New York City
1: and uh, we had three stations on the AM dial Mm -hmm. that played rock and roll. And one of them, WMCA, used to put out the top 40 sheets every week that would list their top 40. And you're 100% right, because I used to collect those sheets. And the vastness of the music that you were being offered was unbelievable at that time. And of course, it's narrowed over time. You just don't see, first of all, radio is not the same as it used to be back then. But that was a wonderful era for just that reason. So many things could get on the air. And then when FM
0: came out, the doors opened even wider. Right, right. Well, that's what you have nowadays is you have a very narrow audience listening to that station so and there's never any cross pollination the greatest thing about what we were just describing is that paul mccartney would listen to motown and that would affect him and he'd end up writing a song because he was inspired by motown and the motown guys were inspired by the beatles and they were all inspired by the beach boys and so you ended up getting more and more interesting songs, more and more songs that were not necessarily cookie cutter because you had all these different influences playing into it. Read. And also
1: back then, I've talked about this a few times on the podcast, promoters put together bills that were multi-artist bills. It weren't one single genre that was all put together. And I'm curious the Knack, you must have played on various different bills when you were out there in your prime. Did you have a whole different group of players with you on the on the bill, that different genres than what you guys were putting out at the time?
0: No, it was already packaging by then. We would have an opening band that would be basically pretty much, for lack of a better term, a new wave band. Right. I I don't remember that. I remember it, but to speak to your uh, uh, multifarious bills in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first concerts I ever went to was at the Hollywood Bowl and it was sponsored by KRLA. And so you had any number of different artists on it. And if I'm not mistaken, the dead were on it and the headliner was the Supremes. Believe it.
1: I've talked on the podcast about I went to the Fillmore East, one of my first shows that I went to see there, and Miles Davis was opening for the Who. How about mm-hmm. that for mm-hmm. a bill?
0: Yeah. And I believe the great this.
1: thing was that each band had an audience that was being exposed to the other band. Yes. And they didn't know the that band probably in advance. And I think it just it was one plus one equals three, if you know what I'm saying.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember uh I saw uh, Pink Floyd in around seventy-one, and I don't remember much of it, you know. But the opener was Harold Lloyd, and I don't know if you remember Harold. You, well, you probably was. He's jazz flutist. Harold Lloyd. Yeah. Wait, Charles, Charles, Charles Lloyd.
1: Charles Lloyd.
0: Harold Lloyd was the actor. I always think. Harold yeah, Lloyd, Lloyd was
1: in the silent movies. I yes, think. <laughs> exactly. I,
0: yeah, it was. So it was like, oh, okay, fine. You know, I was actually already listening to, to jazz at that point.
1: Well, he had a hit. Charles Lloyd had a hit. I can't think of the name at the moment that was kind of a a, a pop based jazz hit. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's probably why he got onto the bill there, because he, it was kind of a fusion type of thing. Yeah, But he was a great player. There's no question. Kind of like a, a
0: Herbie Mann kind of record. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth. And I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience, and of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode. And the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. All right, so you guys are riding high. I mean, you couldn't ride higher than you were riding in 1979. Tell me again, what was it like? You didn't tell me. What was that experience like to be at that pinnacle?
0: Well, it was a blur, for one thing, because we were a working band. And so we were used to just playing, you know, several nights a week at the clubs. And then when we recorded, we recorded basically like we were playing our club set that's what mike chapman said he said uh, my idea of recording you is just to have you do like you're playing the clubs and i'll just turn on the tape machine and so we burned through the first album uh, we recorded it in like a couple of weeks i mean we were hated in the industry because at that time people were like their budgets for albums were like two three hundred thousand dollars if they were a big artist and here we are with a number one album, and a number one song and we recorded it for $17,000. All
1: right, I heard a rumor. Tell me if this is true, that you recorded my Sharona in one take?
0: Um, might have been two takes. We didn't do, we the basic track, we never did more than two takes. So it's very possible it was in one, in one take. I know I did the solo in one take. It, it technically, no, because there was one point where I thought I'd screwed up and I didn't. And so I kind of dumped like my hand go, yeah, down the re- down this, the neck and they go like, why did you stop? I said, I, th- I thought I screwed up, didn't I? No. Oh, well, okay, then start the table, keep going. <laughs> so it was basically a one day solo.
1: Those were the great days of rock and roll where groups went into the studio and played live and it was captured and the energy was captured at the same time and that's the way i still record with my band we go into the studio we're well rehearsed maybe we do two takes maybe three takes at most of a song as opposed to so many artists and bands now that do it instrument by instrument and you know bit by bit i just think you lose a certain feel when you
0: do it that way do you agree or not i agree but also, I, I mean, the, the key phrase you use is well-rehearsed. That's exactly what we were. And that means that you actually have a very well-defined idea of what you want to play, what you want it to sound like. And at that point, that means you've already actually put the work in to create a song that works. And not everybody does that. I agree with you. No, no. There's a lot of experimentation, you know.
1: Well, you can experiment. I don't have any problem with that. Sometimes, the, you know, people go into a studio. They really just have an, an, an idea in their head as to what they want to do. I just had one of the guys from the Wrecking Crew on the air, okay, Don Randy, one of the great keyboard players of the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, he was describing how sometimes they get hired by a producer and the guy would have everything orchestrated. And there were other times where they'd come in with a, a chord sheet or with just a concept, and they would be creating it on the spot. Sure. And when you have great musicians
0: like that, you can get away with that. Yeah. Did he by any chance mention the Baked Potato? He did. That's his club. Yeah. Because that's that was like right at the edge of the valley. And every time you drove into Hollywood, you'd see the Baked Potato, and it was always Don Randy playing there. That's
1: right. And he's uh, in his mid-80s. I think he just turned 85 or 86, and he's still – At the Baked Potato. Is that right? Still open. That's right. All right, listen. Let's go to the second part of this interview. We're going to do the little song fest thing. So we're playing right now your monster hit. I mean that in all seriousness. A monster hit, My Sharona. So I want to hear, what else can you tell me about that song that we haven't heard yet? That you haven't heard about the song? or Oh, from you. I want to hear your thoughts, your impressions.
0: Well, it did exactly what we wanted it to do. It had this kind of primal feel to it. It was tight as hell. Uh, the lyrics were salacious. And uh, I had created the riff. And brought it into a very early recording—I mean, rehearsal session—of the NAC. And Doug said, "That's great. Let's go back and write it." You know. And we went back to his room, and uh, like maybe an hour later, we had the song.
1: That' yeah, great. By the way, you mentioned something about the lyrics. Now, I just had on the podcast the guy that you know, named Dave Dawson, who under the name D and D Philpot. Yes, Put out this book, uh, Dear Mr. Popstar. And one of the letters that he put out, and for anybody that didn't listen to that episode, it's a book with very, very funny letters that he and his father wrote to various artists, basically riffing and goofing on song titles and, and the bands, et cetera. And one of them that we read that I particularly loved was a letter that was written to the Knack about my Sharona. Do you remember that?
0: Oh, yes, I do. I do.
1: And your response, okay, which was wonderful, basically calling them fools, if I remember correctly.
0: Well, I I mean, I decided, you know, just to go along with the spirit of the bit. Right. And the spirit of the bit is that the person who's writing has no idea, for some reason, thinks that a Sharona is a model of a car. A car right? And so I responded <laughs> to that in that in that kind of snooty, polite, you may be mistaken about that, you know, and and I had a lot of fun with it and uh, he was always very appreciative. It was a very
1: funny bit. And you said something about we should have named it Toyota Sharona, where well, that was the original name of the song. And anyway, you're right. They wrote it as if it was about a car and you said, no, 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 it was not. It was about a real estate agent or something like that. Is that what you wrote back?
0: Well, Sharona became a very successful real real estate agent, as far as I know, is still at it.
1: And she was the actual girlfriend of your co writer. Am I correct?
0: Not at the time we wrote the song. This song served the purpose. She was a girl that Doug was smitten with, which was a little awkward because we were writing the song in the living room of the apartment he shared with his present girlfriend. And I remember at one point, and I always teased him about this, he was singing, Mama, Mama, my, my, Sharona. And I go, Doug, Doug, like Judy's like in the next room, and you know. But he was a lead singer, and lead singers are the kind of guys who will just bust the door down. He's, like, I don't care, I don't care. You know, it's a song. God bless him. He didn't care.
1: So the girlfriend's name was Judy. Yeah, at that time. Okay, my Judy,
0: I think would have made it. That sounds right. like a Carrie Grant number. It's right, Judy, Judy, Judy. Yeah. So that's. I mean, my impression of the song is. You know, I came up with that hook and I've gotten a lot of compliments over the years on that hook. And, you know, Doug had the inspiration to kind of spit out the lyrics. I mean, the Mamma mai was him channeling uh, Roger Daltrey stuttering in my generation. And we were a really good songwriting team in that we played off of each other really well. And Doug had a great enthusiasm. And so, like, if I did something that he liked, it was like, "That's great. That's great." And I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not. I'm like, "Well, okay, yeah <laughs> and And I let other people decide, you know, but uh, so i i I would describe it as having its own energy. I would describe it as being a little primal, maybe even a little dangerous. that's That's kind of general.
1: It was a great song, and you deserve all the accolades and the success that it brought you. Let's listen to the next one. This is Good Girls Don't.
2: She's your adolescent dream Schoolboy stuff, a sticky, sweet romance But she makes you want to scream Wishing you could get inside her pants So you bend your away While you're squeezing her
0: Tell us a little bit about this one. Good Girls Don't was a song that Doug had written. Uh, that was all him on that one. Several years before there was a knack. Like maybe a couple of years before. And he imagined it as almost a kind of a Johnny Cash delivery. And he had the, you know, harmonica up. Uh, I mean, Johnny Cash didn't play a harmonica, but he had the harmonica on the harmonica stand around his neck, you know, the whole kind of Dylan look. And it was just a salacial teen song. I mean, salacious teen song. you know It was about actually, come to think of it, uh, this is a fun uh, little nugget. It's something a girl actually had said to him when he was a teenager. Good girls don't, but I do. And uh, he thought correctly that that's a great thing for a teenage guy to hear. And so uh, that was basically, uh, that was Good Girls Don't.
1: Now, oh, it's funny how many songs got written because of kind of throwaway lines that somebody remembered, okay? And I'm I ju- just the one that's coming to mind is uh, Eight Days a Week, okay? Mm. And A Hard Day's Night, that was another one. That was a Ringoism, if I remember correctly. Right you know, just great lines that somebody heard, remembered, and turned into a great song,
0: yeah, well, that's always that's always it's that's a gem if you can find one of those terms. You mentioned I do musical theater these days. <laughs> there's a great story from uh, Gypsy and Steven Sondheim wrote the lyrics, and Julie Stein wrote the music. but uh, Jerry Robbins, who was the, the great the greatest musical theater director ever. Uh, he, he wanted a song at the act break, and he wanted it to sound upbeat and showbiz, even though it's a really kind of a creepy moment. And they had the idea, Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence wrote the book, if they could come up with a phrase that sounded like an old, one of those old fashioned cliches, but when they made up themselves, then they came up with, everything's coming up roses and to, everything is coming up roses, you would think that's something that somebody had been saying since the 20s. And the name of the character, Ethel Merman's character in Gypsy is Rose. And they were so jacked up. They, go, everything, that's perfect. They were so excited, they ran over to Jerome Robin's apartment to tell him it, the great news. They go, Jerry, Jerry, everything's coming up roses. And he goes, everything's coming up roses what? Think about it. <laughs> so, so that's when they actually came up with one of those great phrases in it.
1: Yeah, well, I thought it worked as well. Okay, let's go to the third one. This is another day in paradise.
0: Tell us about this one. Uh, another lousy day in paradise. When we were doing our third album, um, we'd been we'd been going through real trouble in the band, and it was us trying to reconnect. And uh, one of the ways we would do that is for Doug and I to sit in a room and be songwriters again, and and like you know, like just bounce ideas off of each other and another lousy day in paradise was a phrase It's like a t-shirt somebody would wear a t-shirt at some resort another lousy day in paradise and i thought that was a great idea for a title and because it was a knack song i came up with a, a guitar figure riff to start up the song and and play throughout and it was just one of those times where the lyrics were mostly dougs and you know i would come up with the chord changes that would suggest the melodies and uh, by the end of the day, we had a song that for me was like one of the better knack songs that just kind of encapsulates all the cool things we could do as an ant. Well, you're right. It does have that kind of feel. And the
1: name is good. I like that name. It's got an image to it. OK, sometimes you want to hear the name of a song and it creates an image and you go with that image. And that's what it was.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because it, because basically it was a uh like social commentary song one of those downbeat everything screwed up and so in this case another lousy day of paradise was no it really is a lousy day in paradise
1: okay one more we got africa
0: Tell us about that one. Okay. Africa, on that third album, we were doing something that we hadn't allowed ourselves to do in the first two, which was stretching our wings. I mean, we were we were a pretty good playing band. I mean, our drummer Bruce Gary was spectacular. And I could get around on a, on a guitar. And uh, Prescott was a terrific bass player. And so we were doing styles that people wouldn't expect the the neck. People tend to think in cliches, and so if you're the guys who did My Sharona and Good Girls Don't, you must be that kind of a band. And we just wanted to stretch and do some different things. And I was at the time listening a lot to uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. They just—they knocked me out. And one of my favorite songs by them was Getaway. And the, and the, the rhythmic structure of Getaway just killed me. And I sat down at a Fender Roads and start playing this, this figure and, you know, started coming up with my kind of jazz steely Dan kind of chords, you know, and uh, Doug really responded to it. It was on, I had made a rehearsal type of songs that, you know, just pieces of music that might make songs. And I didn't, I was, I just put it on because I liked it. And I had no idea I'd think it was appropriate for a Knack song. He said, "No, man, that's great." So we did it, and it's got an extended guitar solo, and it's one of my better songs. So that's why I bring it up. <laughs> so somebody can some of my work. Well,
1: this is your interview, so you're entitled to do that. All right, tell us a little bit about your your career beyond the neck. Okay.
0: Well, when I was in my 30s. The knack, we had we had tried our best, we had done a lot of really good music, and it just wasn't gonna work anymore. And I was never the kind of guy who was driven by individual ambition. I wasn't about to go out and start busting my head, starting up a new band or something like that. And I wanted to do something that I thought I could be really good at, that because I had a lot of I had some talent that wasn't necessarily like you know, picking up a guitar and slamming. I, I had loves of, of different kinds of music and and uh, and I was starting to write a bit. And I tell the joke, it's kind of kidding on the square, I asked myself, which art form is most likely never to put another dime in my pocket? <laughs> and so I chose musical theater. And, you know, to this day, if I named my shows, you wouldn't you wouldn't know any of them because, you know, you either get big big like get to new york or but i've we've had productions and they went well and um i i was for years in a musical theater workshop writer's workshop and i learned the craft and took it really seriously and to this day i'm working on a couple right now and you know i i do good work and and it's it's not what you hear nowadays in musical theater which is actually reflects. Very much what you and I were talking about of what music used to be in rock music,
1: well, there's so much of musical theory, theater, that are revivals now, because I guess the producers feel like they can sell the tickets to that. I had a fellow on the uh, podcast early on who was the co-writer of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he was telling me about the problems and the the timing to get a, a show onto Broadway. And I believe he was saying that it was something like, this is Steve cuden I'm talking about, who was mm-hmm. on the podcast. And Steve was talking about how the typical musical would take, I don't know, 12 years or something like that from beginning to end. And the millions of dollars. I mean, it was an, an enormous production. And, of course, the failure rate is is pretty high as well. It is a tough field.
0: It's an extremely tough field in that regard and it does take years to write a show it really does because you never stop writing it you're always rewriting it because you write it and you say maybe take a year year and a half to write it where you can do your first reading and at your first reading you then learn oh my god the pace is awful at that point or, or you know like it's it's this character's paying off a lot more than this character and so it is a slog and it does take a long long time and the the business yeah it's uh it is really really hit or miss and and you're right it it's uh it's it's just a hard slog it i, I don't know how else to put it it it's uh a lot of work you put in and it's very likely nothing's going to come of it
1: you know like so much of the arts If it's in you, if this is something you have to do, you got to separate the creative part from the commercial part. Mm -hmm. Okay, If all you're after is commercial success, then you're probably not going to be very interesting, at least to me. You're going to try and be emulating all that's out there as opposed to blazing a new path or doing something that maybe is not front and center with everybody at that moment. So, you know, the fact that you're out there doing something that uh is difficult, so what? That's that's the way the world goes best.
0: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more that if it's not something that you really 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 want to do and like you say, people just trying to emulate what other people are successful at, that never works. It never does. I've made the point that if you hear a song that's successful, that's a hit, you might think it's appalling, but I guarantee the people that did it, believed in it and thought it was great. You can't fool audiences. You can't, you can't mail something in and say, well, this will sound just like the song that they really like and so they'll like it too. It doesn't work, it doesn't work.
1: I agree with you. Listen, keep doing what you're doing. I admire it. We have been speaking here with Burton Aver, who was one of the key guys in the knack of my Sharona fame. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to
0: hear you talk about all this great stuff that you did. Well, this has been painless, and that is a very high compliment.
1: (laughs) Good. I'll take that as a compliment. All right, we're going to listen now to the song that started off this episode. It's my song from the new album and it's called Annie and Lenny. I want to thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode.
2: Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. I'm in love with Annie. She's the one for me. So in love with Annie. It's so easy to see. But I'm in love with Lenny at the same time. So in love with Lenny She's got me in a bite Don't know what to do now Don't know what to say Gotta keep up happy i Lucky to have both of them.